Uh, open this morning to Psalm 17. Psalm 17, today's October 17th. We'll begin there. Set our hearts right before we dive into our series here. We're on series one, actually study one. So I keep mentioning this is a perfect time to jump into to Grace and Granted. It's a three-year curriculum that we work through semester by, by semester. Um, there's a workbook that goes with it. If you need one of those, uh, where is Timotheus? There he is in the back. Clay is also up here. Um, if uh, you need a book or you need to, you haven't uh, signed up with your emails to get uh, to get announcements for Grace and Granite, just put your hand up and Tim will bring you one. The book is uh, if you don't have money this morning, that's fine. It's twenty bucks for printing and those kinds of things. So, all right, thank you very much. Um, we are working through foundational convictions, uh, developing men that are committed to the church and and to uh, to pursuit of Christ. But we normally start with a with a psalm. We'll do that do that today. I don't really have any new information for you from Israel. I spoke to Boaz early this morning, which is not early for him. He's uh, I think seven hours ahead and. Um, Everybody's kind of waiting to see when the, the next shoe drops over there. Uh, I think I mentioned um, on Sunday, just be cautious watching the news, paying attention to all that. Most of that's sensationalized. Uh, I was watching a, a, uh, both a CNN and Fox News um, update, and the guy was hiding behind a rock um, close to the, to the Lebanese border. And I have been many times at the very location that he was shooting from. And, um, you know, he made it look like this super uber tense you know, situation. Um, like he was standing in front of, a, of an Israeli tank. And he was standing in front of an Israeli tank from a war about 50 years ago. Uh, you can actually stop there and climb on those tanks. Many of you have went with us have actually done that. These are blown-out tanks. So I'm not in any way saying it's not a bad situation or a tense situation. I'm using that as an example that what you see on TV uh, is for for TV in a lot of cases. Uh, I doubt anything's going to happen. I'm not a prophet. I doubt anything's going to happen, though, until after Wednesday because President Biden is going there on Wednesday. Um, Our CENTCOM command guy is there, so... You got a lot of stuff going on. I, I doubt they're going to launch a ground offensive while President Biden is is in Israel. But, but that you know, who knows? Uh, very, very ugly situation. And uh, so we we keep watching it, keep praying. Um, this just gives more time for our prayers to be answered for the believers that are embedded amongst the IDF while these soldiers are cleaning their weapons and thinking about what's about to happen next. I'm sure there's lots of time for a conversation, and so um, pray for, uh, uh, for, for, for that. Psalm 17 is a prayer of David, and it is a, uh, a sobering prayer, one that I want to encourage you this morning to, to, um, to pray at some point, if you're not able 
to right now that you would move in, in, in that direction. This is a prayer that David prays um, to the Lord, and he actually calls on God to search him, to judge him. Uh, listen to these words in verse 1. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication, my judgment, come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and found nothing. In these first three verses, this is... This is a divine courtroom scene. And so David is going before the Lord, the judge sitting upon the bench, the one that can see all, not only his actions but his motives. He even talks about uh, your eyes look with, with, with equity, with, with clarity, and um, even in the middle of the night. And he is calling for God's scrutiny. I think the first thing you have to think of is who in the world would do that? Well, only a saved man would do that, right? You're, you're not, if you're not right with the Lord, if you're not secure in the righteousness that He's provided you alone by faith, like you, 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 the Word of God brings scrutiny on you and you look into the mirror of the Word as an unsaved person and you're convinced of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. This work of the Spirit of God with the Word of God. Nobody can stand before the scrutiny of the Lord as an unsaved person other than be exposed and recognize that you have no, no right, wrath is upon you, you're separated from God, all the things that the, that the, Bible, the Bible says. But one of the first things that happens in salvation, when you recognize that, you feel the weight, you're crushed under the weight of God's law, then the, the good news of the gospel comes, that, that God has made a provision. He's, he's provided a covering. There's been an atonement for your sin. He's, he's went to the cross and absorbed that for you, the good news of the, of the gospel. The bad news, who you are, what you are, the good news, that God has not left us in that condition, but through the person of Jesus Christ has, has absorbed that wrath. And then he freely offers the forgiveness, the, the application of the atonement through through faith uh, alone. And then upon faith, the Lord credits the, the work of Christ to your account. He washes you clean, casts your sin as far as the east is from the west, and declares you righteous, even though you're not righteous yourself. Um, nobody stands before the Lord uh, that, that reads the scriptures and understands rightly as an unsaved person, and says, here, weigh me out, Lord. Look at my good and look at my bad. I think I'm going to come out okay in the end. I mean, you're a fool if you, if you think that you're going to do that. Because Scripture says you've already been weighed in the balance. You've already been found wanting. There's nothing that you're going to be able to stand before the Lord. So the first part of salvation is recognizing your condition. The second part, which is something God brings to you in the gospel, the Spirit helps you understand, is that God's done something about that. It's all Him. It's all grace. It's all the work of Christ. And then that work's credited to your account. But then God declares you righteous. He forgives your sins, washes them, deals with the offense, but then He does something more than that, something positive. He, he credits you with His own righteousness, which is why He calls you a saint. 
and why he calls you holy, even though you're going, I'm not a saint, (laughs) and I can find all kinds of things in me that's not holy, even as Paul will say at the end of Romans 7. I know that in me dwells no good thing. But in Christ, there's perfection. In Christ, there is righteousness, everything that I need. And now I'm in Him. And so the Lord looks at you positionally, no longer outside of Christ, but now in Christ. Outside of Christ, we're sinners. We have no hope. The wrath abides us. In Christ, we have full forgiveness. We are, we are sons. Um, we, we are, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is our brother. We're joint heirs. I mean, everything that's promised to Christ is ours because we are in him. And so if you want anything from God, you've got to get in him. You've got to get, get, get in Christ. So David, as an Old Testament saint, believing that Christ would come and putting faith in God, has this position before the Lord. And As a saved man, he's now going a step further. He's now saying, as a saved man, trusting in you, trusting in the righteousness that that you will provide, we're looking back that he did provide, he's saying, um, Lord, I stand before you, and I know of nothing in me. I have a clean conscience, which is another level, isn't it? Hear a just cause. Give, Give heed. Standing before the Lord, listen to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come forth from your presence. He's not looking at his own righteousness. He already is looking to the righteousness that God alone provides. But now standing in, in, in our case, in Christ, we would say, Lord, I, I, I know what I am, but I know of nothing between me and you. I, I'm, I'm not living in any open rebellion, active sin. I know I fall short. Let your eyes look with equity. Verse 3, you have tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You have tested me, and you find nothing. So a man moves from condemnation to maybe silence, being timid before the Lord. Ah. I really want to invite God's scrutiny in my life. A lot of people look that way. Like, can I just kind of coast through church? Maybe the Lord won't see me. Uh, I surely don't want to stand before him and say, here I am, God, examine me. But that's exactly what what a believer can do. That's what David does here. He's appealing to the Lord. I, I know of nothing. The work of the Spirit has gone beyond salvation to now there's integrity in David's life. He, he's calling for that scrutiny. You don't call for that scrutiny unless you're living for the Lord. And, and he says, look at the end of verse 3, I've purposed with my mouth, I'll not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the wicked. So you've looked at me by night, you've looked into my heart, I, I've purposed with my mouth not to transgress. Is David saying that there's perfection here? No. He's just saying, with integrity, I can say this. Um, I'm not pursuing these things. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I've called upon you, for you will answer me, O oh God. Prayer, incline your ear, hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, your Old Testament word for 
for grace and mercy. O Savior of those who take refuge at your, your right hand. I think it was last week or week before, uh, just a simple statement from Proverbs. Sin will make you a coward. Um, walking with the Lord in righteousness will make you bold, give you confidence. Um, David obviously is praying in confidence here. Um, and he's calling upon the Lord for, for something. You're not going to be able to ask God for things. You're not going to have the confidence that, to trust in the promises of God if you're not walking with the Lord, if there's, if there's sin in your life. Look at verse 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye, like the pupil. Um, you ever go to the eye doctor? Probably. I would guess most of you do. They have to numb your eye so they can take your, your pressure when they go in there. And you can feel it getting close and everything in you just wants to shut your eye. There, there's a natural instinct to protect the pupil that, that's there. That's what David is saying here. Keep me as something that, that, that you protect to the greatest degree. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Why? Or from who? From the, from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eye, eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear and a young lion lurking in hidden places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Now David begins to talk about his circumstances. You can apply this to a lot of circumstances. And he's asking Lord to, the Lord to intervene. These circumstances are too great for me. And obviously you, you have an enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, and he doesn't announce when he's coming, does he? His ways are camouflaged. He comes as angels of light. Talked about that on Sunday, perilous times and, and poisonous men. You're not his equal, but he's not the equal of the Lord. There's not black and white, yin and yang, good and evil, doing some kind of cosmic battle where God is, is equal with Satan. Satan is nothing more than his servant. He's asking the Lord to arise and confront him. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life. What a blessing. We have a portion that's not in this life alone. Whose belly you will fill with your, your treasure. They're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face. My treasure's not here. My treasure's there. And my treasure is to be able to look upon your face in righteousness. I'll look upon your face and be judged, but look upon your face in righteousness. And I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. What a, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. Psalms are so helpful. They meet us in life because there's nothing new under the sun 
And because there's no temptation taken us, but such which is common unto man. David's heart is just like our heart. His circumstances are just like our circumstances. They come in you know, different dress and different culture, but, but nothing different as it relates to temptations and wickedness and otherwise. And nothing different in your promises. Thank you. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to be able to stand before you and be so confident in the work of Christ and um, so resting in, in, in him, so pursuing of your sanctification that we could stand before you as believers and say, Lord, I know nothing between me and you, and I ask you um, to answer that confidence, I pray, for everyone here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open to page one of these foundational convictions. We started Grace and Granite four years ago just to do devotions together. Um, when I came to Christ, I didn't know the difference between the Old and the New Testament. I could not have told you any Bible verse other than John 3.16. And I probably couldn't have quoted that to you. Um, the first time I ever heard a hymn that I can remember uh, that I paid attention to, I'm sure I heard it whenever I was a kid, was about four or five weeks before I, I came to, to the Lord. And there was a man, after I was saved, I'd been a believer for, I don't know, maybe about a year, uh, my pastor was bivocational. He was unable to do a number of things that I desired him to do. He was a great man. He discipled me and helped me. But I wanted more. I, I want specifics. I mean, I immediately had a hunger for the Word. I immediately wanted to see my friends come to Christ. And I just began to devour the Bible. But I had no idea really what to do with it. it you know, in one sense, uh, you know, like a, like a five-year-old with a really sharp knife, um, I was eager to figure it out and use it and whittle with it. And, and, uh, and yet, uh, obviously, I can cut myself. So there was, a, there was another pastor at a different church um, that was uh, the pastor of a, of a lady that I worked with. And um, we, we connected, and I asked him to disciple me. That was the word, the only word that, that was used then. Now, I learned later that that discipleship is not like a nine-week course or, I mean, it, you, you are a, a disciple means a follower of Christ. You're, you're always learning. And so don't think of discipleship as a program. Discipleship is, a disciple is what you are. It's what you do. But this brother had about nine uh, to ten weeks of basic stuff. Um, and we just began meeting. He talked to my pastor. My pastor said, yeah, that would be, that would be great. And um, he lived maybe 45 minutes away. And um, we went through, what is the church? What is the Bible? What are the ordinances? Um, what about giving? I mean, just super basic stuff. Um, that wasn't the highlight, though. I mean, that, that was helpful information. Just, just kind of got me up to speed on things that I probably already should have known, but, but, but I didn't. I didn't know how much you're supposed to give. I didn't know any of that. But the highlight was every single week he would he gave me a sheet of paper and on that sheet of paper it had a verse to memorize. It was like a half sheet, fit in my Bible. 
And then it was day one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way through seven. And then it had, uh, there, was, there was a reading assignment. So the very first week, I never will forget it. Uh, we read First John. And so I was to read um, two chapters a day. And then when I got done, I was to go back and, and read it again because, you know, there, there, there's not 14 chapters in, you know, in First John. And there's a little check mark. So when I got done reading chapter 1, I was to put a check mark, you know, there. And then I had to memorize the verse. And then he told me, take a notebook and just write down your observations. What are you learning? Ask questions about, about 1 John as you, as, as you read it. I was so inept, I had no idea what I was doing, that when I looked at the piece of paper, I thought it meant 1 John verse 1, not chapter 1. And so when I came back in, I had only read like 14 verses, but I tore those 14 verses up. And he was like, he was very gracious. He was like, no, 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 not, not verse 1. The whole, Oh, you want me to read the whole chapter? Okay, you know, I'm not reading anything. Um, and I, I, just, just sitting with a brother, sitting with, with, with somebody guiding me, and then sitting with an open Bible before the Lord, asking the Lord, teach me something new today, and then going to the Scriptures, writing that down, meditating, thinking on it, and then coming back, the feeling of fulfillment, of checking that box, now we think that's a bad thing. In this case, it felt good. You know, I've done what I'm supposed to do um, as a minimum. And then going back to someone who's holding me accountable, and then just talking through it. Like, yeah, I read this. What does this mean? I mean... You know, First John, our eyes have seen and our hands beheld. I mean, what, what does that mean? I mean, just, just basic questions and someone being able to say, oh, this means this and that means this. Hey, look over here and then getting an assignment the next week. And that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do corporately. Um, and it was, it was very helpful. We're trying to do our morning devotions together at least one day a week, but the main goal is to build a stronger commitment in you to the bride of, of Christ, some, drive home some foundational convictions. And we said that begins with having a working biblical literacy. I'm on page one. Um, we talked about how you have to know your Bible, and if you don't know your Bible, so what? Neither did I. But now don't say, I don't know my Bible, therefore I can't do X, Y, and Z. Open your Bible and get to know it. So that's what we're talking about. Number two, we said you have to have the right perspective of leadership. You want to be a man? All of this started with with our passage in 2 Peter, where God says that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need. To, to get to heaven, eternal life, and everything you need for godliness here and now has been provided by, by the Lord's power. He's, he's, he's already granted that. And that comes through a knowledge of Him, um, which is connected to His promises. And then those promises, the result of that is you become a partaker of the divine nature. So everything's done in salvation. All the promises are there. You have been fully resourced to grow and do what, what we're talking about doing here. And then Peter says, now apply all diligence. Now it turns to you. Put forth effort. Strive in this direction. Strain in this direction. Labor to be able to add to your faith moral virtue and 
and then the list. So that's what we're trying to do. That begins with having a working biblical literacy, having the right perspective of leadership, avoid thinking leadership is what you see in the, the world, uh, an influencer or a CEO. Biblical leadership is, is just modeling a personal pursuit of Christ. Um, we talked about applying the word to life's hardest questions. Don't just hover over the Bible with general things. Drill down. Ask hard questions and apply it. It's not just data. Um, true change happens at the heart level. Number four, know how to develop convictions in others. You can't develop convictions in others, your friends, your wife, your children, other people in church. If you don't have convictions yourself, you're not going to develop convictions if you hover generally over the Bible and not ask hard questions. Convictions come from diving in, going down to the bedrock, sinking your hooks into that, um, and then holding on to that. That's what a conviction is. It's a belief that drives your life, and then those convictions will, be, will, will influence others. A high view of God, a high view of the Word, those are convictions. Um, our convictions here, the Lordship of Christ, the power of the gospel, the sufficiency of Scripture, the centrality of the church, those are convictions, and that, that comes out in the way that you, 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 you do life. Have the right perspective of yourself. So what we talked about last time, humility. Humility is the queen of graces. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ. We are nothing. Christ is everything. Look at number six. Here's where we're at today. You also need to have the right perspective of longevity. You don't want to be a shooting star. You want to be a freight train that runs on tracks, you don't want to be cutting your own path. God doesn't need you to cut a path. He's already cutting a path. He needs you to stay on the tracks. And then that train starts, and it picks up steam. And the farther it goes, the longer it goes, the faster it goes. That's what you want to be. You don't want to be something that just streaks across the sky, makes a big splash. You want to be something that builds a and goes for a really long time. How long do you go? You go until you see Christ face to face. So you have the right perspective of longevity. You have the right perspective of yourself. You're just a a faithful slave. When you have the right perspective of longevity, talking about in life and leading, you want to teach others to stay at it and be faithful For the long term. What does being faithful mean then? Of course I want to be faithful. What does being faithful mean? Success is faithfulness. How do you know you're successful to the Lord? You're faithful to the Lord. Well, you probably know this passage, but but open to it. 2 Timothy 2.2. We're talking about having the right perspective of leadership and, and longevity. And number seven is going to follow the right perspective of influence. Longevity and influence kind of go together. It's 2 Timothy 2.2. If if you were uh, someone 
a human being designing the plan for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, I would say, without a doubt, you would not have come up with the plan that God did to take 12 doofuses, one of them is of the devil, save them, they're not of you know, the educated elite, they're not even of the religious class, and then send them out into the world with a message of a crucified Messiah, and you can be saved by believing in, you know, in, in that alone. I mean, and yet, you see the wisdom of the plan, where God gets the glory, and he's the one that accomplishes the work. It's not dependent upon you, but he uses you. And now here's the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy, his last letter, he's about to die. So now there's another generation coming along, Paul, an apostle out of his time. And what's Paul's plan to keep the thing going? Well, here it is in, to Timothy, Timothy, his disciple. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust these to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. He tells him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's not about you. It's about the grace of Christ. That's where your strength comes from. But then he says, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's not saying this is his own thing. This is orthodox truth. This is in the presence of many witnesses. This is not Paul's own. This is the faith once delivered to the saints. This is what Paul received from the Lord that I've now proclaimed and preached. It's been confirmed. And now I've entrusted that to you, Timothy. And what do you do with it? He says, you then entrust that same body of doctrine, that same truth, that same message and everything that goes along with it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I mean, that is a recipe for longevity right there. He says, teach others to stay at it and be faithful in the long term. Teach them, but then teach them to take everything that you just taught them and to teach that to others. And to teach those people to teach it to, to others. And we're here, however many years later, doing the doing the same things. I mean, what's the focus? You know, the focus is passing on truth. Um, I heard Paul Washer years ago before most people knew who Paul Washer was when he was with, in Peru with, with Heart Cry. And um, he really shaped my thinking on, on missions. He said, always remember the focus is not sending missionaries, it's sending truth through missionaries. You're not just sending men, you're sending truth through the, through, through the man. And, and so, if you're sending men, or women, whatever capacity it is, you're sending them, and they don't know the truth, then you're not doing biblical missions. In fact, you could be, you could be hindering the work of missions. It's, it's sending truth. You're the vessel. Of course, the vessel's there. Paul says faithful people, people that, that are right with the Lord, people that are walking and able to stand before that, that scrutiny. But, but they're just the vessels. The vessel carries the truth. So 
you're the same way. You, you, the focus here is passing on the truth, not, not fads or gimmicks. Um, what you think will influence people. Um, and you're passing on that truth, and you're, as you pass on that truth, you're teaching the people that you're passing it to to do the same thing. It's about the truth. You're passing on the truth. Um, it's not about you. So you have to be careful, men, not to fall to fads or gimmicks. In my day, that was the purpose-driven church. Today, that could be anything from woke, social justice. There'll be something after that. Um, I forget who it was. Somebody showed me uh, over the weekend where the Gospel Coalition had, had some guy write about uh, so many, how many ever things Christians can learn from a Taylor Swift concert, and they ended up taking it down, and the Babylon Bee had a heyday with that. Um, just stuff that's irrelevant. Uh, Bible studies based on Andy Griffith. It's a true thing. You can learn. Andy's God the Father, Barney's us, um, you know, just nonsense. It's just, it's just utter nonsense. Um, don't believe Satan's lies concerning perceived influence. I'm a world changer. I'm a champion for Christ. Um, no, you're a slave. In fact, you, you know, you, you're, you're the means by which God does his work, but it's his work. Don't don't you know? Go back to go back to number five. Don't have an inflated view of your uh, of yourself. Don't think it's you have some perceived influence. The minute you think you have perceived influence, then then you're detracting from the truth, and you're not depending upon the thing that actually has the influence, which is the truth. And then stay away from the love of money that that can come from from influence, the love of of things, comforts that dull our senses to the Word and to Christ. So a foundational conviction for a man is to have the right perspective of longevity. Um, You want to get on the tracks, and you want to be a freight train that builds, and you want to influence your family, and you want to influence the people around you, and you want to influence people in the church, and your influence is the truth. So you can't influence people if you don't know the truth deeply yourself. So now we're back where we started. You need to have a working biblical literacy. Also have the right perspective of influence, which goes right along with it. Longevity, anybody that you read in church history, anybody that has affected uh, uh, us or others, they had a long ministry in one place. Um, and they, they're, they're writing about the truth. I was alive. I, was, I went to Liberty whenever Dr. Jerry Falwell Sr. was there. Gracious, gracious man. I never will forget. Uh, I think I've told you this story before. He just remembers your name. He remembered my children's name. He was a gracious, gracious man. Um, and the Lord used him to do many things in many ways. We still have a major university right down the road. But has anybody ever writ, writ, read a book that Jerry Falwell wrote other than what you were required to read, you know, in, in, in class. Um, there's not a slam on him, but nobody's going to be reading 
any book by, by, by Jerry Falwell because Jerry was, you know, didn't write books that, that was about exposition and contained truth. Um, there are men that you're still reading 500 years later. People, if the Lord tarries, will still be reading John MacArthur commentaries, not because I like him, but because the commentary is just an exposition of the truth. What is enduring is my point. What's enduring is not the charisma or the influence of a man. What is enduring is the truth. And that's what you want to use for for influence. So have the right perspective of, of influence. Men must not measure influence in the church at a superficial level. Young men fall to this easily. Um... They're quick to exalt others, quick to restore others, quick to notice charisma, followability, um, and exalt people uh, before there's actually the substance that goes along with it. Um, you probably find a number of examples in contemporary church life, from Andy Stanley, who's a false teacher, to Steve Furtick, who's another false teacher, and yet they have uh, Joel, Joel Osteen, who's another false teacher. Um, I don't say that lightly. I'm not just throwing bombs. I mean, listen to what they're saying. These are false teachers. Um, and yet they have churches filled with, with people, influence people in significant ways. You, we, we can't evaluate. People will say, well, well how, how could it be wrong? I mean, look at, look at how many people are being saved or look at how many people are, are, are gathering. It's evaluating influence on a superficial level when you say that or do that. We can't evaluate it by numbers or perceived influence. Such external and often fluctuating dynamics are not a reliable measure of a God-blessed ministry. This is 2 Timothy 4.3, which is a passage that we, we... pointed to at the very end of our sermon on, on Sunday where Paul tells Timothy to preach the word and you're to preach the word you're to be instant in season and out of season because the time will come when when they'll not endure sound doctrine they won't want to hear sound doctrine and what will people do when they get there they'll they'll not turn away from from teaching they'll just find a teacher that'll tell them what they want want them to hear and then they gather a, a large crowd. It's not hard to gather a crowd. You can gather a crowd. I mean, you, you people write books about how to draw crowds. That happens on a regular basis. And having a crowd is not a bad thing, but that's not an evidence that God's blessing. It's not an evidence that, that you're actually influencing people spiritually because you have a crowd of people. Uh, on the flip side, some of the greatest heroes in heaven are going to be people that you've never heard of that were faithful in a church somewhere in the mountains or in the desert with 50 people. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, The time will come when churches will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teacher in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to to myths. If we define a successful ministry merely by attendance and popular opinion, how will we ever know for certain 
that Paul's warning here has come to pass. In other words, if the church is always claiming success by the numbers, then she will never become aware that she has merely accumulated teachers according to the popular vote. Of course, you can go to the other side of that of that knife. Um, you don't just stamp down hard on the you know on the truth, and you've got you and you know three people, and the three people don't even follow you. But this is just a warning of, of what is influence. Um, it's not based on your personality, uh, your ability. True influence uh, and true leadership is it looks like the long haul. And it's rooted in the, in the truth. Look at number three. And if audience approval makes particular preachers popular, the church will assume that God is blessing gifted teachers and spiritually hungry people. But superficial evaluations such as church size and popularity are no affirmation of God's blessing. It may be merely the result of good old-fashioned consumerism. Audiences may crowd an auditorium but desire shallow sermons by clever communicators. It's exactly what you see in a number of places. And teachers may assume great giftedness and blessing given the crowds that follow, but their shallow preaching delivers what the church or the crowd in this case already desires. Look at B. I think this is probably one of the most important things I'll say this morning. All true spiritual influence flows from godly character. And I encourage you in that. Every single man in here can develop godly character. And therefore, every single man in here can have a, have a significant influence in the kingdom. I think sometimes... We, we listen. Again, I'm not arguing against being gifted in, in communication. And I understand that the Lord has elevated people in the church as a whole, whether it's the John MacArthur's or the Piper's or the Molers or the whoever's, the Sproul who's already passed, to speak on that kind of level. I'm not arguing that, that that's bad, but those men are committed to the truth. But it's the godly character and the commitment to the word that actually brings the, the influence. And I think we listen to people like that and they say, I mean, who am I? I can't do even what pastor does. Um, don't think that way. You, you, you may not, but that has nothing to do with whether you're able to influence people in the church. It's your godly character where influence comes from. I am useless and worthless to the Lord if there's not a godly character that goes along with, with the preaching and the, and the teaching. Men must have integrity in their hearts. Psalm 15, 1 through 5. You may know Psalm 15. It's one of my favorites. I'll read it to you. Again, a Psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity, lives his life with integrity, and works righteousness. 
is integrity in his, in his works. And he also has integrity in his heart. He speaks truth in his heart. He doesn't slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate evil is, 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 is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, the right evaluation of self and, and others. And he swears to his own hurt and does not change. His word means something. He doesn't put out his money for interest. He doesn't take advantage of other people. He doesn't take a bribe against the, the innocent. He has integrity, even whenever there's benefit for him. He who does these things shall never be shaken. Men must have integrity in their hearts, which is where integrity is. It's in, internal. The force and credibility of a man's influence is not whether he can draw a crowd and not whether he can influence people verbally, the force of incredibility of a man's influence is directly related to how consistently he strives after godliness when no one else is around. That's where influence comes from. Who you are when no one is watching but Christ is who you really are and nothing more. Integrity means being the same person on the inside that we are on the outside. And every man in here is called to that kind of integrity before the Lord. And if you pursue that kind of integrity in your heart, then your force for the Lord and your credibility will give you the ability to influence others. But that's directly related to how consistently you strive after godliness when no one else is around. Oh, I don't know of any sin in my life. I mean, I'm not looking at porn. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. But do you have integrity? Can you stand before the court of the Lord and invite divine scrutiny? I mean, down to the level of not just, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't run with girls that do. I mean... What about the matters of the heart? Um, who are you when no one is looking? Who are you when only Christ is, is watching? That's who you are. You're not more than that. Well, I, 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 that, you know, that, that part of my life is a wreck. But, but I go to church, and I go to Grace and Granted, and I, I do this, and I do that. No, who you are is, is who you are in, 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 in private. Um, Godliness works from the inside out. That's where it has to start. All change begins in the heart. But then the beauty is it works out into life. You have the ability to, to influence, influence others. Integrity means being the same person on the inside that we are on the, on the outside. Some of the most godly influences I've had in my life was not somebody that stood in a pulpit, but it was somebody that that walked in front of me or around me and I was able to observe their life, the godliness in their, their life. I'm not pitting those two things against each other. You need both. But I'm saying to you, you can be that kind of influence. 
You can be that kind of influence in your home. You can be that kind of influence. And you don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to do that. You just need to know Christ, and you need to have a pure heart, and you need to pursue. And So you say, how do I get that? Well, the first thing you do is just start by confessing sin. Stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I really don't even know if I want to do this. But, but here I am. I mean, all my hope and all my trust is in Christ alone. I mean, He's the one that that I'm leaning on for salvation. So, I, I mean, I've done that. But as scary as this is, I, I, I want to be right with you, and I want to, to help others, I want to influence others. So I need to stand here spiritually naked, if you will, before, before, before you, and I want you to point out the areas that I need to, I need to work on. That's where it starts. And then whatever the Lord shows you, He will. Whatever the Lord shows you, you know, fly to Christ. Don't, don't get down. Rejoice. The Lord's pointing out these things. The sin's taken care of. Now what He wants to do is sanctify you. And then confess it. Um, and as you confess it, the Lord will bring more. And then more. And you submit that to the Lord and then you... Do what you're doing right now and grace and granted and Sunday and otherwise and strive after godliness. But keep a short account on, on sin. Have integrity in your heart. Um, that's really where Satan will attack you um, when nobody else, the part of your life that, that nobody else can, can see. And he steals your joy, he steals your assurance, and he steals your usefulness. Integrity means being the same person on the inside that, that we are on, on the outside. We'll talk next time about godly character, how it flows from a life of humility and, and, and faith. But talk to me about the right perspective of longevity and influence and then spiritual influence flows from godly character. Can you think of somebody that was unknown in the church but influenced you in a, in a great way? Any insights on on what you've you've heard stunned to silence All right. ernie robertson in what way just watched his walk his life amen amen can people say that about you? In your conversations in general, they look back on the conversations they've had with you over, over the years. Can they say, man, I, I, I don't ever remember talking to Brian when he had a bad thing to say about, about somebody else. That's a general characteristic of, of his life. There was an 80-some-year-old lady in Cornerstone. She's with the Lord now. She used the phrase, uh, she said, Pastor, uh, that, that woman never parted her lip about you, even when she was upset. I never heard that phrase before. Parted her lip, which meant never spoke anything bad. Even though she didn't like the direction that you were, that you were going, she never parted her lip about you. It's good. Godly character, it's influence. You remember that. You think of other people? 
Okay. Did you guys hear hear that in the back? He's talking about he watched his dad uh, in his job throughout his whole life take uh, ridicule, or and and he never retaliated, and he and he and he continued to be faithful, you know, in that, and that that marked him. He he, he remembered remember that. It's influence. It's influence. No words. I mean, there's words in there. Words that affected him, but. There's a pattern. Things caught, not necessarily, not necessarily taught. Harold Nash comes to my mind. What a brother. Um, he would have been here at 4.45 this morning. He was here, just, just a faithful guy. Anyone else? Yeah. Jesse Marilla. Jesse, unshaken by anything going on in life, he just just has joy, joy of the Lord. It's influence. I mean, this is Hebrews, right? Provoking one another to loving good works. I see, I come in and I'm not like him, and I think, wow, I need to be like that. It's influence. Yeah, well, that's a that's a, a long statement. Um, he is, uh, I think he's perverted the gospel in in, in a number of, of ways. But he, he, I would love to sit down and and talk talk with you through some of his teaching and show you some of the issues that that are there. But thank you for asking the question. But yeah, yeah, I, I think he's I think he's he's polluted the gospel in 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 a number of ways. But happy to show you some of his sermons where I think he's done that. Yeah. Yes, sir. Steve Furtick.
Amen. Influence. Somebody else have one? Yeah, Larry. Let's pray, and we'll ask the Lord to give us this integrity that, that we all want, and we all need the Lord to help us give. Heavenly Father, I do come before you this morning, and I give you thanks for your grace. I give you thanks for the fact that none of us are able to stand before you apart from the gospel, but in the gospel, we, we are we're as Christ, which is just mind-boggling to say. We become partakers of the divine nature based on your promises through the knowledge of, of him. And because of that, you've provided everything that we need for life and godliness, and we want to strive. And, and Lord, where we begin is not climbing mountains. We, we, we begin by... by wrestling for integrity in our own hearts, rooting out sin that, that's there, bringing the light to, to the heart. Um, and I pray for every man in here that we would, we, we would do that, and then we would have influence, beginning in, in the immediate spheres right around us, our friends, our home, our church, and then even beyond that, Thank you, Lord, that you use clay pots like us. Fill it with the treasure of the gospel. I pray for every man here. You would bless us as we go in, um, throughout our day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.